Well, thank you for sharing your Sabbath afternoon with me. Um, I'm going to guess that most of you were probably here this morning. Some of you probably were not. Um, but that's okay. We have a little review built in. I'd forgotten that. But I do have some review, I think. So we'll, we'll get you up to speed in a moment. The Door Was Open is the, uh, the title here. And unfortunately, I subtitled it as well. But we didn't go through. The door was open. But we didn't go through. You saw this this morning. Why is any of this important? Because, as religious teachers, we are under obligation to God to teach the students how to engage in medical missionary work. Now, not everybody's a teacher in a classroom or, uh, you know, something of that nature. But nonetheless, um, everybody's exerting some educational influence. Let's put it that way. Well, the review here. We saw this morning that Dr. Kellogg was converted in 1888, and he soon began working along benevolent lines. This was an essential work that the churches had left undone. And for those of you who, anybody who wasn't here this morning, these are basically paraphrasing spirit prophecy comments that we had on the screen this morning. Okay? Some ministers rejected health reform, criticized the kind of work Kellogg was doing, and made war upon him in order to build themselves up. Dr. Kellogg began to fight back, belittling the ministry and seeking to make his work into a monument to himself. The disunity between the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. In 1902, both the Battle Creek Sanitarium and the Review and Herald Publishing House were providentially destroyed as the Lord tried to get the leaders of these institutions to do the work represented in the 58th chapter of Isaiah. Dr. Kellogg was eventually disfellowshipped, and the denomination quickly moved away from the benevolent work. And again, I want to, to emphasize that <clears throat> that's, that's such a, a, an easy thing to understand. I don't know somebody, hopefully not everyone, but you know, every now and then you end up in a situation where you're, you have somebody you're working with either uh, above you or below you who has it out to get you, so to speak, and it's just not that pleasant, you know? And after a while, you get tired of it. And the denominational leadership at the General Conference had plenty of reason to be tired of Dr. Kellogg by the time he was finally disfellowshipped in 1907. Um, it is a very easy and natural thing to do to associate the work one does with the person. And so, you know, I don't find it hard to see how that would have been done. Well, anyhow, during that time period, out in California, something new was going on. Ellen White was calling for the establishment of sanitariums, particularly, she specified, in Southern California. Now, there's an interesting little 
tidbit here that we'll come back to much later. Why California? Why did she say, I mean, you know, what's, hey, what's wrong with Arizona or East Texas or, you know? <laughs> but she kept calling for sanitariums in California. Anybody know why? Remember any particular compelling reason for California? Okay, that's not what she cited. It's, it's a good consideration. Somebody said weather. The weather was the weather was a contributing factor. California at the time was famous as a healthy place. It's good weather. Okay, pardon? It was it was in some places. I mean, you, know, you had L.A. Yes, but you know there were there was certainly countryside. But it was a famous tourist area. It was the tourism that she specified in particular. She said. We establish these places where the tourists go. And somebody comes from Minnesota, down here, that snowbird or something, you know, <laughs> I'm getting out of the winter. <laughs> and they go to Southern California for their health. Now, a lot of the time, you know, much of the time, health institutions in those days were not focused on acute care. They were focused on more what we'd call lifestyle medicine type of thing, okay? And so people would go to institutions for their health's sake. And then they'd go back home. And she said, we want to catch the tourists. And then they take the gospel back home when they go. Okay? She was, you know, she didn't, well, she said that several times. Let's put it that way. She didn't, you know, it wasn't the only horse she was beating, so to speak, but uh, she did say that quite a number of times. So just file that away. It was for the tourist season, or tourist uh, traffic. Okay? There was a second issue uh, that came prominently to the front after Sister White came back from Australia. Okay, you may remember from 1891 to 1900, she was in Australia, and she came back in September 1900. And soon after she returned to the United States, she began raising an issue that she had spoken of some before her departure, not much during the Australian years, but when she came back, she started talking about cities. There were more cities in the States than there were in Australia. Australia was still a fairly young and somewhat sparsely established uh, country over there. And she started saying these things like this. We must do more than we have done to reach the people of our cities. Okay, so we're going to take a look at this focus on cities for just a little bit here. She said, there is to be a working of our cities as they never have been worked. That which should have been done 20, yes, more than 20 years ago, is now to be done speedily. Okay, 1905. 1909 here. Henceforth, medical missionary work is to be carried forward with an earnestness with which it has never yet been carried. This work is the door through which the truth is to find entrance to the large cities. Notice that thought. What is the approach, the angle, <laughs> to reach the cities. Medical missionary work, okay? She says that in, in quite a number of places, okay? 1910, in every city there should be a city mission that would be a training school for workers. Many of our brethren must stand condemned in the sight of God because they have not done the very work that God would have them do. Ouch, that's a little rough. Um, you know, I am convinced that God is merciful. 
but he's also a God of justice, and I let him sort out the two sometimes. You know, I'm, I'm not sure what that statement means. But it's clear she was calling for work in the cities. That much I know, okay? The burden of our cities has rested so heavily upon me that it has sometimes seemed that I should die. You know, I, I don't know that I have that level of empathy in my heart yet. The work in the cities is the essential work for this time and is now to be taken hold of in faith. With mighty power the cry is to be sounded in our large centers of population. Behold, the bridegroom cometh, go ye out to meet him. But you know, there are a lot of cities. That last statement said that in every city there should be something. You know, uh, it said medical. Uh, let me get it right. The, uh, yeah, in every city, okay, it's two statements ago, <laughs> there we go. In every city there should be a city mission, that's what it was, it would be a training center, okay. In every city, actually, I, no, I haven't done the full, you know, statistical evaluation on this, but I would be willing to wager a guess that the three, the, the most common three-word phrase that she uses in this discussion here is, in every city. She says that over and over again. In every city, there should be this. In every city, there should be that. In every city, there should be medical missionary work, okay? Now, if you're going to do something in every city, you're going to be doing a lot of that something, whatever it is, okay? Because there's a lot of cities. How, how, I mean, you know, at some point you have to scratch your head and say, is she just blowing hot air? <laughs> I mean, you know, what's up with that? You know, in every city, that's not even realistic, is it? Or does she mean it? Yeah. Well, what do we do with this, okay? How is this all supposed to be done? Well, okay, we're going to look at logistics here. So let's try this statement. If we were only vitalized by the Holy Spirit, there should be a hundred missionaries where there is now one. In every city, there's your words, there should be a core of organized, well-disciplined workers. Not merely one or two, but scores should be set to work. More attention should be given to training and educating missionaries with special reference to work in cities. Now, notice the date on that one. That's 1893. That's, that's, that's back a few years already, okay? So the idea is, she, it's not like she originated this after she came back from Australia, but, you know, 1893, she'd already been saying, in every city, okay? Well, let's take a look. Let's kind of break this down a little bit. What does that word mean? An army. A body, I'm hearing, okay? Actually, yeah, if you put an E on the end of the word, what do you get? <laughs> okay. Um, it's uh, like the Marine Corps. Okay, it's an organized body, and it's often, yes, often used of an army. Okay, there should be a core of organized, well-disciplined workers, not merely one or two, but scores. What is a score? 20. 20. 20. What's the S on the end mean? Which means a minimum of? 40. 40. 40. 40. <laughs> yeah, 40. Yeah. <laughs> okay, anyhow. Uh, in every city, there should be... 40 workers. That's what we've adopted in our work with Adventist City Missions as a minimum for Wichita. It just works out conveniently. We have a population of about 400,000, so that's only 10,000 each. 
It's a piece of cake. <laughs> you know, are we overdoing it? You know, is, is she is she exaggerating when she says the scores? It says scores. You know, I don't I don't see that that's too many. You know, I I have a hunch that, you know, ten thousand people. That's that's good. You know, that'll keep you busy for a few weeks. Okay, let's go on. Another one here. She's writing. She says, arouse your associates to work under some name whereby they may be organized to cooperate in harmonious action. Get the young men and women in the churches to work. Combine medical missionary work with the proclamation of the third angel's message. Make regular organized efforts to lift the church members out of the dead level in which they have been for years. See if the breath of life will not then come into our churches. And let's break this one down just a little bit. Work under some name whereby they may be organized. Again, this is not a haphazard slapdash type of thing. There's some organization going on here. Now, it doesn't have to be so much organization that you kill the whole operation with red tape, right? Or as an Indian friend of mine, as an American Indian friend of mine used to call it, white tape. <laughs> but, <you> know, uh, <laughs> I always liked that line. I thought it was kind of cute. <laughs> white tape. Okay. This is not the only place. Quite a number of places in, in discussing this kind of work, there is a specific call for young men and young women. Why? Well, I mean, some of us, have a few gray hairs already. You know, why don't, you know, why isn't the Lord calling for all of us? You know, well, he is, but there is a special role, there's a special place for young men and young women. Uh, if you haven't figured it out yet, one of the important things for going through life gracefully is recognizing what you can and cannot do at certain ages. You know? When I first started teaching in my early 20s, I could do things, and I'm not just talking physically, but I mean, I just my influence was different. I had a different relationship with my students than I did in my 30s, than I did in my 40s, you know? Things change over time, and you better get used to it. If you are a 20-something, you're still young enough that you carry some um, influence with the teenagers, okay? But you're old enough that people begin to look at you as a, you know, some sort of a certified adult. Okay, um, that's a great that's a great time period. Capitalize on the influence you have during that time period because it evaporates. It will go. I don't care. You know. I don't. You know. You can take all the vitamins you want. Someday you're going to turn thirty. You know. <laughs> it just happens. Okay. Uh, so anyhow, young men and young women. Okay. Move on. Combine medical missionary work with proclamation of the third angel's message again. You know, these two things go hand in hand. Lift the church members. You will find the occasional Laodicean, right? They're in a, some sort of a dead, what you say, dead level, okay? See if the breath of life will not then come into our churches. You know, I come from Kansas currently. And out in the Midwest especially, I think, I'm not sure, maybe it's everywhere else in the States too, but there is a fair amount of talk about small dying churches, especially in some of our rural areas. Uh, rural America is going through some, you know, some demographic changes, and I, I don't know that I can explain or deal with all that. But when you start talking about dying churches, I would like to point out that this is a divinely inspired remedy for how to revive a dying church, okay? I prefer divinely inspired remedies to most all others that I've heard. Okay, this sort of approach worked the one time it was tried 
<laughs> one time it was tried, okay? It was tried. It was done. It was working. It happened in San Francisco. There are many lines of Christian effort being carried forward by our brethren and sisters in San Francisco. These include visiting the sick and destitute, finding homes for orphans, work for the unemployed, nursing the sick, and teaching the love of Christ from house to house, the distribution of literature, and the conducting of classes for healthful living and the care of the sick. A school for the children is conducted in the basement of the meeting house. And I don't know what kind of school that was. I'm still trying to find out. In another part of the city, a working man's home, i.e., homeless shelter, and medical mission is maintained. On Market Street near the city hall, there is a bath establishment. We would call it a hydrotherapy treatment center. Operated as a branch of St. Helena Sanitarium. In the same locality is a depot of the health food company where health foods are not only sold, but instruction is given as to reforms in diet. Nearer the center of the city, our people conduct a vegetarian cafe, which is open six days in the week and is entirely closed on the Sabbath day. Here, about 500 meals are served daily, and no flesh meats are used. Dr. and Mrs. Dr. Lamb are doing much medical work for the poor in connection with their regular practice, and Dr. Buchanan is doing much free work at the working men's home. We earnestly desire, excuse me, earnestly hope that the steps taken in the future in the work in San Francisco will be steps of progress. The work that has been done there is but a beginning San Francisco is a world in itself, and the Lord's work there is to broaden and deepen. Look at these words. She just listed all that off, and she said, good start. <laughs> it's but a beginning. It was working, right? The Lord's work there is to broaden and deepen. It did not, unfortunately. Anybody know why? It all ended in the 1906 earthquake. Yeah. 1906, it all came down, and it was never re-established. Okay? That sort of multifaceted, full-scope metropolitan evangelism, to the best of my knowledge, has never been tried since. It's only been 104 years, but, you know, <laughs> what can I say? Uh, to the best of my knowledge, now, there are possible exceptions to that, places that I don't know. I mean, I know that there's some, you know, a variety of things going on down in, like, Sao Paulo, down in Brazil. Maybe that comes pretty close. I'm, I'm not sure. But in the United States, I think I can speak with a pretty good degree of certainty. We've never done it. We've never done it since, Okay. It is my contention, my belief, that the multiple facets of metropolitan ministry are to work together, and that as they work together, you will have success. If you try any one of them by itself, well, it's been done. In the last 104 years, all of those things have been tried on multiple occasions, in isolation. And by and large, they have died on the vine. It's been discouraging. I've watched it happen. Okay? Okay. One final point here on logistics. Repeatedly, the Lord has instructed us that we are to work the cities from outpost centers. In these cities, we are to have houses of worship as memorials for God. 
But institutions for the publication of our literature, for the healing of the sick, and for the training of workers are to be established outside the cities. Especially is it important that our youth be shielded from the temptations of city life. Now I'd like to make just a quick point here. For, oh, generally anybody up to, you know, early 30s type of thing. I just want you to be aware, if you're not already, that whatever you were raised with becomes the baseline for your evaluation of the rest of the world. Does that make sense? Do you follow what I'm saying? Okay. If you were raised in the city, the city is normal. Right? Normalcy in your eyes does not make it necessarily acceptable. Does that make sense? It's a simple reality. You got to, at some point, you're going to have to come to grips with the fact that what is normal to you may not necessarily be right. This is why we have an objective source of authority. We call it inspiration, <laughs> okay? Um, it may not be right, you know, and, and this is one of the hardest things that you, hey, and every teacher has had to deal with this, you know? Well, that's the way we do it at home. Doesn't mean it's right, sunshine. <laughs> I'm sorry, you know. It's I'm sorry, you know. Yeah, well, you know, and and you know, people eat po uh, you know pork roast at home too. That doesn't make it right, you know. And some other homes, you know, they practice. Uh, we won't go there. They they practice other things. It doesn't make them right. Okay. Normal doesn't mean right. Now I've got a concern here, and I'm just going to throw this out after our next statement. The cities must be worked. The millions living in these congested centers are to hear the third angel's message. This work should have been developed rapidly during the past years. A beginning has been made for which we praise God. Outpost centers are being established from whence, like Enoch of old, our workers can visit the cities and do faithful service. This was the burden of my message to the brethren and sisters assembled in conference at Los Angeles. On the morning of the San Francisco earthquake, April 18, the second day after the scene of falling buildings had passed before me, I spoke in the Carr Street Church and bore a decided testimony. I referred to the great work that must be done in the cities of our land and of our inability to do this work by establishing institutions in the heart of these cities. We must learn to labor from outpost centers. Now, I would like to draw your attention to that word. What does that mean? What does inability mean? It's something that can't be done. <laughs> okay. Now, I have a hot tip for you. Some people find meaning in life by taking on a challenge. That's good. If you want a serious challenge that will give you some level of meaning, I suppose, for your entire lifetime, take a task that God says is impossible for you to do and spend your life trying to do it. It'll be a challenge. You will fail, but you'll have the satisfaction of a job poorly done uh, or something. I don't know. <laughs> what can I say? You know, when God says it won't happen, I'm just almost stupid enough to believe that maybe he means it won't happen. Okay? Let's go on. 
out of the cities, out of the cities. This is the message the Lord has been giving me. The earthquakes will come. The floods will come. Anybody remember Katrina? <laughs> we are not to establish ourselves in the wicked cities where the enemy is served in every way and where God is so often forgotten. We must make wise plans to warn the cities and at the same time live where we can shield our children and ourselves from the contaminating and demoralizing influences so prevalent in these places. And let me just, this is, this is a speculative type of a thought. This is a thus saith Dave. So take it for all that that's worth, okay? Actually, Dave's not even saying anything. This is a, this is a, a thus wonders Dave, <laughs> okay? Here's a thought to think about. These cities, which are contaminating and demoralizing, and which most of us grew up in and seem normal, that we are counseled to protect especially our children from, is there a possibility that that contamination and demoralizing influence could actually disqualify people from finishing the Lord's work. You may remember David wanted to build a temple. And God liked the idea of the temple. But he said, you have been a man of war and you are disqualified. You cannot build my temple. Now let's just pretend for a moment that David had, in actual fact, fought in 128 battles. I made up the number. And let's just suppose for a moment that we have the chance to ask the Lord and say, well, what if he'd only fought in 120 battles? Could he build the temple then? <laughs> I have no idea. Uh, it's, a, it's a bizarre, absurd question. I raise it to make the point. It's a, it's, a, it's a bizarre question. God simply disqualified him. He said, I'm sorry. Appreciate your interest. Appreciate your intentions. But you are disqualified. And there is nothing that I can do about that now. And I look at these statements and I say, if we are in fact to serve as John the Baptist, and we are, <laughs> to prepare a people for the coming of the Lord, would it not be a shame if we failed to follow John's example and get out of town? <laughs> Does that make sense? That's a question. That's not a statement of, of, of theology, but that is a serious question. I don't know. You figure out what to do with these statements. They're there. I don't know how to avoid them or ignore them. I'm not sure exactly what they mean in every case. But anyhow, okay. Well, now, the outpost concept there, she especially emphasized following the destruction of San Francisco for the simple reason that everything that had been going on in San Francisco was destroyed and there was no, no residue left to restore it from. And after 1906, you find her repeating over and over again much more insistently, the idea that we work the cities from outposts, okay? Um, this was actually a whole new approach to evangelism. 
the cause of God today would have been far in advance of what it is, and had we in former years been more active in the training of nurses, uh, seems like I missed something there. That's okay, let's go on. Um, there's a logical disconnect going here, but anyhow. Had we in former years been more active in the training of nurses, who in addition to their acquirement of more than ordinary skill in the care of the sick, had also learned to labor as evangelists in soul-winning service. Okay? So she's advocating a different approach. This is something that we had not done at the time she's writing. Okay? It is for the training of such workers, as well as for the training of physicians, that the school at Loma Linda has been founded. In this school, many workers are to be qualified with the ability of physicians to labor not in professional lines as physicians, but as medical missionary evangelists. The cause is in need of hundreds of workers who have received a practical and thorough education in medical lines and who are also prepared to labor from house to house as teachers, Bible workers, and co-porters. Now, this is, a, this is a, a, a tremendous example of what in the business world of late has become rather trendy, cross-training. <laughs> she says, I don't just, you know, the Lord is not just calling for people who have some medical skill. He's calling for people who know how to be a canvasser, a co-porter, right? A Bible worker, house to house. Okay. Now, this is a whole new approach. This is not what they had been doing. When you try something new, it's, it's often a tricky business, right? I mean, you, you're, you're kind of having to invent the wheel, you know, all for yourself. Any administrator, well, most administrators, any good administrator, okay, somewhere along the line has realized that when you start a new program, sometimes what that means is you better have a new person to run it. Okay? It's, it's, it's hard to tr teach an old dog new tricks. Okay? The good news is that when Elwent was writing all this, she had just the man in mind. Better yet, he was already on the job site. He just didn't know what his job was going to be. Elder John Burden. Until quite recently, I believe Advent Hope, I don't know how long ago, but you know, since one year? Okay. Since the last time I was the last time I was here, you were still meeting in, in Burden Hall, named after this dapper looking young man here. Okay. John Burden is about as close as I come to having a hero in Adventist history. This guy is incredible. He's the guy that bought the Paradise Valley Sanitarium. Then he bought Glendale Sanitarium. And Ellen White was still calling for a third sanitarium. She says, there's another one. There's another one. There's, a, there's this really funny letter that Willie White once wrote. You know, it, it, it's probably not that easy being the son of the prophet. You know? it's, it's a little awkward at times, no doubt. But he wrote this letter, and he said, you know, Mother keeps calling for sanitarium work in Southern California. And so Elder Burden bought this uh, property down at Paradise Valley, and we thought, surely this is, this is a good thing. But Mother kept calling for more sanitarium work, and so he bought Glendale. And we thought, surely that would fill the bill. But Mother kept calling for, for more. 
And so there was a Dr. Ledbetter who was in private practice, but he agreed to, to sell his practice and, and turn his, his, uh, his practice, I don't know where this was, but you know, someplace in LA, I guess, uh, turn his practice into uh, some sort of a denominationally sponsored thing. And we hoped that that would, that basically, that would make mom happy. <laughs> we hoped that that would satisfy the need, but it did not. And she keeps calling for another sanitarium. And, and basically, Willie ends up saying, I don't know what we got to do. Well, it was John Burden that, uh, of course, bought Loma Linda, right? If you have not read the story of the purchase of the property, you know, around here someplace, you need to read it. It's a great story. I'm not going to tell it, okay? Now, the best thing about John Burden, in my humble estimation, if you go to the White Estate and you start counting up the number of letters that Ellen White, to wrote, Ellen White wrote to people, John Burden received the sixth most number of letters, okay? Something in excess of 300, I forget exactly. Uh, the first five, by the way, would be Wooly White, A.G. Daniels, John Harvey Kellogg, George Butler, Stephen Haskell. May have the order out of whack there, but those are the people. Okay. John Burden received 300 letters from Ellen White. Not once was he reproved. This guy's like, Daniel, no recorded sins. I mean, it's like <laughs> 300 letters from the prophet, and not once was he reproved. He was counseled. He was cautioned, you know, be careful of this, that, and the other thing. But he was never reproved. This guy's my hero. I mean, that's, that's, that's stunning. Okay. Okay. What was his secret? I think... It was just he was stupid enough to do what he was told. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. A whole new approach. <clears throat> Ellen White's writing. She says, it will take some time to get a right understanding of the matter. But just as soon as we, be as we begin to work in the line of true reform, the Holy Spirit will lead us and guide us if we are willing to be guided. Much good can be done by those who do not hold diplomas as fully accredited, accredited physicians. Some are to be prepared to work as competent physicians. Many, working under the direction of such ones, can do acceptable work without spending so long a time in study as it has been thought necessary in the past. What did she just do? This is like 19, oh, oh I don't know, that sounds like 06, I'm guessing, something in that neighborhood. It's you know, plus or minus three, four years, okay. 104 years ago, she just invented a whole new profession. What do we call them today? Physician's assistant or nurse practitioner, right? Probably 100 years ago, she would have called it something along the lines of an evangelistic physician assistant or something like that, okay? She was saying, our job, our focus is evangelism. Okay. Now, if you notice, if you remember the name of the institution as originally established here, it was the College of Medical Evangelists. It was not the College of Evangelistic Physicians. Subtle difference, perhaps. Okay. It was the College of Medical Evangelists. Okay. Well, this is how John Burden wrote out 
to the General Conference Executive Committee, his letter, this is his understanding of it. To us, it seems clear from the testimonies he just quoted, that there are at least three classes of workers to be educated in medical lines. First, many well-trained nurses to work as evangelists. Second, a large number of persons qualified with the ability of physicians to labor as evangelists. Third, a few fully accredited physicians with recognition to stand at the head of the work. What does that mean? Stand at the head of the work. Pardon? Oh, to lead and to guide? Okay. Stand at the head of the work, we might ask where? And the answer is at the next medical school that they open. Loma Linda was not necessarily supposed to be the only medical school. And to operate a school, there are certain technical legalities you got to go through. And those people needed to be recognized by the state. There were some, Burden says a large number, who could be well-qualified evangelists without the necessity of the formal recognition. Okay? Well, any new idea will face some challenges. No reason to think this case should be any different, but sometimes God can cause us, up, cause us to step up higher than we've ever gone before. And Ellen White sensed that this new concept of what was to be done at Loma Linda was going to, you know, hey, it's a new idea. It's going to meet challenge and resistance, okay? And so she wrote some of the strongest things she ever wrote dealing with this topic. Our people are now being tested as to whether they will obtain their wisdom from the greatest teacher the world ever knew or seek to the God of Ekron. Let us determine that we shall not be tied by so much as a thread to the educational policies of those who do not discern the voice of God and who will not hearken to his commandments. Okay, who is, or where is this, this God of Ekron thing? Where's, what's that from? Pardon? Philistines. Boy, you got me. Is that, is that Philistia? It might have been Philistia. I, <laughs> I don't remember. That wasn't what I was looking for, but good job, gentlemen. I was looking for Second Kings. <laughs> that's, what I was, that's where it comes from. Okay. <laughs> Second Kings, chapter 1. Okay. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice of his upper room in Samaria. Okay. It's like the guy's standing around on the balcony. He leans on the railing, and it gives way, and he falls down. I mean, this is... I have a warped sense of humor. It's in a way that's almost funny, you know? It's just, it just seems it's a strange thing to happen, you know? He falls over and he gets hurt, okay? And so he sends his messengers to find out if he's going to get well. To whom does he send them? The God of Ekron, okay? And so the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria, and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron. So the messengers come back to the king, and they say, A man came up to meet us and said to us, Go, return to the king who sent you, and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Baal-zebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now... <clears throat> 
I had failed to click that thing. My apologies. No, 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 no. What in the world's going on here? I apologize. I'm going to have to take a quick look and see if I have some slides. It almost seems like some slides are showing up as hidden. No? Uh, this is uh, frustrating. My apologies. Okay, well, okay. Had that slide been up before? Yes. Okay, maybe I just, uh, you know, a little Alzheimer's moment or something. Um, okay. Well, okay, let's go on. Uh, this is the same quotation as it continues here. Ellen White is talking about this question of what to do with Loma Linda. She asks, shall we represent before the world that our physicians must follow the pattern of the world before they can be qualified to act as successful physicians. This is the question that is now testing the faith of some of our brethren. Let not any of our brethren displease the Lord by advocating in their assemblies the idea that we need to obtain from unbelievers a higher education than that specified by the Lord. Now this is an interesting statement. Notice this last little bit down here. She is not saying, as she sometimes does, she is not saying that the true education from the Lord is the highest of all education. She's not really saying that here. She's simply saying, don't let somebody displease the Lord by saying, let's buy the world's statement that we need a higher education than that which the Lord has specified. And this is a very challenging thought. And the question kind of boils down to this. Who decides what's going to be most useful? And on what criteria is it decided? And I, I sort of suspect that from the Lord's perspective, the ultimate criteria is going to come down to how many souls can you save following this route as opposed to following this route. And what I'm seeing here you may see it differently, and that's fine. This is a minor point, but anyhow. What I'm seeing here is that the world may come to us and say, you need more education than God has said we actually need. So, thought to ponder. Well, now, in order to make this, sense, make this any sense, we're going to do a little history. This is kind of interesting. When I went to look this up, I found out that up in Sacramento there is a small group of eager beaver legal aides, and you can call them up from anywhere in the country, and maybe even outside the country for all I know, and say, hey, I'm wondering what this law said 100 years ago. And they'll say, oh, I'm right on it. I'll go find that. I'll mail you a copy. I couldn't believe it. I didn't even have to pay him. It was great. Your tax, your ta your tax dollars at my work. I loved it. Okay. <laughs> Anyhow, so I did. They did a huge amount of research for me up there. It was great. So here we are in 1900, California Medical Societies. There were several. You had the American Medical Association. Not that old by this time, by the way. Only about 20 years old. 
okay? The American Medical Association had pulled off what in the advertising or public relations world today we would call a fantastic case of branding, right? You've heard the term branding, okay? New buzzword in about the last five years or so, okay? I'm yeah, trying to keep up with all the cool words. Anyhow, they got themselves branded and they pulled off a stunt that has only been exceeded by teachers, okay? What do they call a college that teaches people how to teach. What's, what's that course called? It's a normal school. And with all due respect, I'm here to tell you that I know lots of very abnormal teachers. Okay? <laughs> I have no idea how we ever got that going on our behalf as teachers. You know, I went to a normal school. <laughs> what do you go to? <laughs> well, the AMA got a similar sort of branding accomplished. They were known as regular. They were the regular medicine. By implication, of course, everything else was irregular. Okay, that's fine. Okay, very slick. Give them credit. You also had the Osteopathic Medical Society, the Homeopathic Medical Society, the Chiropractic Medical Society, and hey, my personal favorite just for originality, if nothing else, the Eclectic Medical Society. Okay. <laughs> Now you're laughing, but it existed. The Eclectic Medical Institute, later known as the Eclectic Medical College, operated in Cincinnati, Ohio from 1845 to 1942. This school of medical thought emphasized the use of herbal remedies, but was open to adopting any other techniques that proved advantageous. <laughs> okay, it's kind of like plagiarism. Uh, you know, if it works, we'll do it. Yeah, that's cool. That's what eclectic means. You grab what works, okay? There was a school for 97 years the Eclectic Medical College, okay? The point is, in 1900, medical practice in California had a fair amount of variation in it. It was nowhere near as homogenized as we have perhaps come to think of medicine today. In 1901, that changed. On February 27 of that year, a new law placed all medical licensing under the jurisdiction of a single board of medical examiners made up of five representatives of the AMA, two homeopaths, and two eclectics. You may laugh at the eclectics, but hey, they got onto the board, <laughs> okay? Who did not get onto the board? The chiropractors and osteopaths. They didn't, basically, you know, if you were going to an osteopathic medical college in 1900 in California and hoping to graduate and get licensed in the spring of 1901, your goose just got cooked, <laughs> okay? Because the reality was those guys, those guys were not handing out licenses to chiropractors or osteopaths. End of discussion. For all practical purposes, chiro chiropractic and osteopathy were made illegal in California as of February 27, 1901. However, you gotta love politics. Somebody had caught wind of this, okay? March 9, 10 days later, another new law established a board of osteopathic examiners and explicitly exempted them from the jurisdiction of any other provision of California law. <laughs> the osteopaths had seen this baby coming. The chiropractors, 
Well, they were dead meat. <laughs> That's just the way it works, okay? Now, this, this, this whole change of affairs did not make some people happy, most notably the chiropractors, okay? Um, and to, to be honest, apparently, the homeopaths and the eclectics were not too overjoyed with the situation either. Notice the makeup of the board, right? Five from the AMA, two from the homeopaths, two from the eclectics. What are the chances of the homeopaths and the eclectics railroading anything through this committee? <laughs> Zero, okay. Now, the, the, the law did stipulate that it required a supermajority of six. Six, <laughs> there we go, six, <laughs> I don't count well. Uh, it required a supermajority of six votes to pass anything, okay? So the AMA representatives could not, in and of themselves, railroad anything through the board either. But they only had to get one vote, whereas the homeopaths and the eclectics had to, first of all, band together and then convince two of the, of the AMA guys to vote with them if they were going to try and pull off anything. Now, nobody was happy with this law. Okay. So that's the way it went. Okay. <laughs> um, in the next few years, there were a number of scandals that, you know, political... Uh, financial scandals that involved members of this, this board. Hey, hey, you know, this is 1900, right? California was still sort of the Wild West. There were some wild things going on. Um, one of the chairmen of the board, or the, yeah, I think they called him chairman, whatever they called him, the head of this board of medical examiners, uh, there was a lot of complaints against him because he seldom showed up for, movie, or for, for meetings. He was too busy as the Commodore of the San Francisco Bay Yacht Club. Um, so, <laughs> whatever. Uh, but this is, this is politics. This is the way things, you know, this is how society progresses, I guess. Okay? Well, so that lasted until 1907. From 1901 to 1907, there were 21 congressional bills all of which the nice people in Sacramento sent me copies of, that failed to rewrite the law during those years. Finally, in 1907, they came up with a new law. And it's really fascinating. There were four bills introduced into the legislature in the fall of 1907. And somewhere in January, in a smoke-filled room over a bottle of whiskey, somebody cut a deal. <laughs> because the next, I mean, just out of the blue one day, all four of those bills were scrapped, removed from consideration, and a new bill, which kind of cobbled a variety of things together, was placed into the consideration, and within, what, it was like four days. Bam, 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 bam. It went through and, and was, you know, read twice and engrossed and read again and, and sent from the legislature to the House of Representatives, however that whole thing goes over here in California, whatever it is. And it was like 10 days later, it was law. Okay. So somebody cut a deal someplace. Okay. There were a number of minor changes in the law and two very significant new provisions. This is the law. 1907. Three forms of certificates shall be issued by said board. First, a certificate authorizing the holder thereof to practice medicine and surgery. That would be an AMA license, okay? That would be regular medicine right there, okay? That's the first thing they list. Second, a certificate authorizing the holder thereof to practice osteopathy. That's pretty self-evident. Third, a certificate authorizing the holder thereof to practice any other system or mode of treating the sick or afflicted not referred to in this section. Hello, what? 
<laughs> Can somebody say blank check? <laughs> now there were some requirements. This third certificate, this is, this is a medical license. This is a license to practice medicine in California, okay? This third certificate, you had to have graduated from a chartered medical school. But that wasn't that hard to get, okay? You had to have passed some state boards, okay? We'll look at them in a second, okay? So it's not like, oh yeah, send in your box, to box tops and you can practice medicine. It wasn't quite that simple, okay? But, um, you know, it was, it was, it opened a wide arena of possibility. This happened in 1907, okay? That's what the law said. The new law required examinations on anatomy, histology, gynecology, pathology, bacteriology, chemistry and toxicology, physiology, obstetrics, gender diagnosis, and hygiene. What's missing? <laughs> no, that was the second certificate, okay? <laughs> but what's missing? What do you not have to take to become a doctor in California in 1907? Uh, nutrition. Nutrition's never been on the list. <laughs> it should be, but it's not. Next. <laughs> what's that? Pharmacology. They didn't call it that back then. What did they call it? Materia Medica. There you go. Okay, uh, two lists, two items you didn't have to have. One was Materia Medica, ancient Latin for the materials of medicine, which today we call it pharmacology. You did not have to learn the science of pharmacology or drugs, basically. You didn't have to do that. You could, you did not have to. What else is missing? Surgery. You did not have to be, uh, exposed or, or, you know, educated in surgery. You could. You did not have to be. If I'm not missing something, this opens up a huge area for a somewhat less complicated level of, of medical training. Does that make sense? Are you with me on that? You know? Now, is there anything wrong with getting more medical training? No! But it's opened the door for something that we would, I don't know, I, I, hey, I don't really know what a physician's assistant has to know. I don't know if they do surgery. Anybody tell me? Top of your head, do, do PAs do surgery? They assist in surgery. Okay, okay. Um, do they prescribe drugs? They do, okay. What, what do nurse practitioners do? Sorry my ignorance, I just thought I'd get educated here. Same job, okay. Whatever, it works for me. Um, <laughs> it's not the first thing about medicine I haven't understood, so that's okay. Um, but there was this new level of, of playing field, you know? And there it was, okay? Elder Burden, the guy who got 300 letters from the prophet and was never reproved, <laughs> okay? That says something to me. Elder Burden wrote this letter here explaining the situation. He says, Since the legislature of California has opened the way for the students of such a school as the Loma Linda College of Medical Evangelists to be legally recognized to practice sanitarium methods of healing or rational remedies, with no thought or effort on our part, in other words, the legislature did it, the Adventists hadn't agitated this, there had been no lobbying going on, it just happened, it has seemed to us a divine providence coming as it did the next year after we had started our school. 
The battle was fought by the osteopaths, but the legislature then threw the gate wide open for any school's requirements for entrance to the medical course were equal to a high school preparation on the ten fundamental branches that underlie medical education. Materia Medica and surgery are both thrown out so that a good, thorough school of hygiene or rational practice of medicine would have no difficulty in being recognized in this state. And should our school be recognized here, its students would have a vantage ground from which to secure recognition in other states, the same as the osteopaths are being recognized. Their healing art is fast being recognized in all the states, but they have had to fight their way to the front with everything against them. Their opening the way will evidently make it easier, for a time at least, for other reputable methods of healing to become recognized. It certainly was a great misfortune that the American Medical Missionary College, stop right there, who's that? That was Kellogg's Medical School in Battle Creek, okay? It certainly was a great misfortune that the American Medical Missionary College was launched under cover of the regular school, stop right there, what's that? That's the AMA. Rather than under the banner of the healing art embodied in the third angel's message. And it seems to some of us that we shall make the same mistake they did if we undertake to follow their example in establishing a medical school whose very standard, if it is at all maintained, means commercialism from first to last. That guy was a hundred years ahead of his time. How did he know that the most divisive, decisive issue of the political landscape of 2010 would be health care reform <laughs> and financing, <laughs> okay? The guy nailed it. He's my hero. He probably made mistakes though, so you know, don't get carried away. I am sure, this is burden going on, I am sure that as soon as the question of establishing an independent, uniquely Adventist medical college comes up, the first thought will be of a superficial medical education that would be a disgrace to the work of the message unless we can establish a fully equipped medical school after the world's idea, which could become a member of the Association of American Medical Colleges. I do not believe we should for a moment give countenance to anything of this sort. Who or what was the Association of American Medical Colleges? That's the AMA's accrediting body. Okay. Now, I am not a big conspiracy guy. Okay. No black helicopters flying overhead or anything. Okay. I am not anti-AMA. I am thankful for the work the AMA has done. Imagine where we'd be without them. <laughs> You know, notice, I mean, this is 1907 and all it required was a high school, high school education, you know. Yeah, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not, I'm not opposed to requiring pre-med <laughs> before you turn somebody loose as a doctor. The AMA has done a good work. My only question is, is it the Lord's work? That's all. Yeah. I think they've done a good thing. I am a supporter of the AMA. I read their journal <laughs> occasionally. Um, I like their stuff. I love modern science, you know. But is that our tool for evangelism? That's my question. Okay? Going on. Elder Burden continues to write. He says, if much that is now embodied in the medical schools of the world is as useless as the maxims of the scribes and Pharisees, and if there are intricate studies that are a positive injury to the mind of the student, disqualifying him for the work he should do, and again, if much of their course is mere rubbish... <laughs> okay, let's stop for just a second. Dear sweet brother Burden's getting a little critical here. 
okay? What right does he have to say that stuff? It sounds uncharitable. I wondered about that. What right did he have? Well, his comments, as it turns out, are almost, not quite, but almost an exact quote from a 48-page pamphlet of Ellen White's counsels about the work at Loma Linda. That was titled, Testimonies and Experiences Connected with the Loma Linda Sanitarium and College of Medical Evangelists, page 42. Those were her comments. And a little more researching, and we find out that the original source actually turns out to be Ellen G. White letter B, 241 October 17, 1903. What do you suppose that stands for? <laughs> it was a personal letter from Ellen White to John Burton. <laughs> okay. He's quoting a personal letter from Ellen White in 1903, two years before they ever even bought Loma Linda. The Lord had been preparing him to think along a different line, even before he had any inkling he was going to be doing something like that, okay? Okay, on with Elder Burden's thoughts. He says, if all this is ab above is true, Elder Burden asks, would a medical school eliminating these useless things from its work and adding that most helpful healing agency, the influence of the gospel of Christ is revealed in the study of the scriptures combined with rational remedies and the 10 fundamental branches taught in harmony therewith, Boy, these guys used to know how to string out sentences. Would such a school become superficial simply because it stood alone and was not recognized by the modern schools of the world? Would it? That's his question. Would it? Okay. So here's the thing. I, I think that Elder Burden was onto something. I think his ideas probably needed refinement and development as they actually tried to put them into practice. Things might have changed a bit here and there. But I really think he was onto something. I think he had an idea of a way of fulfilling the Spirit Prophecy Council that we have not followed. And I think we maybe lost a, you know, some things of, of, of value for having not followed that. Okay, but let's go on. That, was, that whole section there is just to establish the idea that Ellen White in this whole new concept of how to reach the cities was relying very heavily on the work that was to, on the workers that were to be trained at Loma Linda to carry out this gospel medical missionary evangelism of the cities, okay? Now let's move on back to another question. What about the finances? How in the world are you going to pay for a core of medical workers in every city? How do you do that? Well, in every large city, there should be a core of organized, well-disciplined workers, not merely one or two, but scores should be set to work. We already read that. But the perplexing question is yet unsolved. How they will be sustained? <laughs> Who's going to pay the bill? That's a perplexing question. Well, she later tried to come up with some answers to that question. You know, the Lord didn't always give her everything on a silver platter. She didn't know how it was supposed to work out. But she tried to come up with the answers later on. Here's one. Keep it simple. Stupid. Stupid, okay. Anybody else? I've got keep it simple, stupid, keep it simple, son, keep it simple, Sam, keep it simple, saints. Those are the ones I've heard so far. I'm just getting a little collection here. Okay. Simplicity. Some statements. In every city where we have a church, there is need of a place where treatment can be given. 
for common ailments. The building might be inelegant and even rude, but it should be furnished with facilities for giving simple treatments. These, skillfully employed, would prove a blessing not only to our people, but to their neighbors, and might be the means of calling the attention of many to health principles. You know, there is a natural human tendency to think that we have to have the latest and greatest of everything before we can do anything. And that's just not true. You can start with less than the latest and greatest. The Lord may provide the latest and greatest as you grow, but you can start with less. That's what she's saying here, okay? Let's go on. All the grand displays that have made, been made in the medical missionary works, she's probably thinking Chicago, or in buildings, still thinking Chicago, or in dress, I have no idea what she's talking about there, or in any line of adornment, I don't know, no, it's in the statement, all these grand displays are contrary to the will of God. Our work is to be carefully studied and is to be in accordance with the Savior's plan, with our Savior's plan. You know, when you stop and you think about Jesus' plan of evangelism, it was, it was, it was fairly simple. It goes like this. Walk around, help people, talk about God. <laughs> you know, that's, that's, not, that's not rocket science. Um, <clears throat> it's simple. Do not let me, do not understand me to say that it's easy. Remember, they killed him for doing that. It's not necessarily easy, okay? It's not child's play. In every city where health reform is presented, in every city, right? In every city where health reform is presented to the people, there should be a limited ministry of the benefits of practical health reform in a place provided where the sick may be treated for common ailments. The building may not be all that could be desired, but it may be fitted up to give treatment in simple lines. This simple work will prove a blessing. A good physician who understands the simple means we used in our first practice of health reform has done wonders even in our camp meetings. This work has always proved a blessing. Now, let me break this down just a little bit. What do you see? Common ailments. Why would an Adventist evangelistic physician focus on common ailments? Lots of people have them. <laughs> That's why they're common. <laughs> okay. When you're trying to reach people, you know, um, you can do these, uh, you know, uh, one per 10,000 of the population type of studies, you know, type of thing, you know. And bless their hearts, you know, if, if I came down with one of those rare whatever type, you know, first time ever diagnosed diseases, I'd really hope that somebody would take an interest in my case. I can, you know, I can, I can appreciate that. But, you know, as an evangelist, it makes sense to work where the people are, right? <laughs> okay. Common ailments. Notice what else it says here. Simple lines. Simple work. Simple means. This work has always proved a blessing. Now, I want to I try and reiterate something here a little bit. I am not opposed to the latest and greatest in modern science. It's fascinating stuff. I like it. I'm especially fond of modern acute care. If I ever, God forbid, wrap myself around a telephone pole at 70 miles an hour, I do not want chamomile tea. <laughs> I do not want hydrotherapy treatments. <laughs> I want somebody out there vacuuming up every last red and white corpuscle and rebuilding me. <laughs> I don't care, you know, laser guided this, that, or the other thing, you know. I, I want microscopes on the job. I want, I, you know, I want, I want whatever the modern science can offer. I love that stuff. It's great. 
I just don't think it's a, what we've been given as an evangelistic tool. Nothing wrong with it. It's just not the tool that God gave us for our job. Another thing out of this statement. Look at that. How often do you find Ellen White encouraging a limited ministry? It's like, oh, slow down, let's not do so much evangelism. You ever find her saying that? <laughs> what does she mean? Limited ministry. Well, put it in conjunction with those words. In every city. How limited is that? Okay. Pardon? Limited in size in a single location, yeah. Do you remember the Sunday morning? Jesus had healed everybody in Capernaum the night before. And he'd gone to bed, you know, and a great while before day he went out to pray. And finally the disciples find him. And they come and they say, the whole city's looking for you. What did he say? Time to leave. <laughs> Time to go, okay. There are other places. Capernaum is not the only town. There are other souls. Here's my point. The gospel, medical missionary evangelism is like paint. You can keep it in the bucket if you want to. But it does more good when you spread it out. Okay? Spread it out. Going on. We must do more than we have done to reach the people of our cities. We are not to erect large buildings in these cities, but over and over again, the light has been given that plans should be made in every city of America. We have no time to neglect the doing of this work, which for years has been outlined before us. In every city, there are men and women who would go to a sanitarium were it near at hand, who would not be able to go to one a long way off. I look at this matter in a very decided light. The Lord's plan is to have small sanitariums established in many places so that the greatest number of people, east and west, north and south, can be reached through this means. The sick are to be reached, not by massive buildings, but by the establishment of many small sanitariums, which are to be as lights shining in a dark place. Our sanitariums are to help to make up the number of God's people. We are not to establish a few mammoth institutions, for thus it would be impossible to give the patients the messages that will bring health to the soul. Small sanitariums are to be established in many places. And again, that's a troubling word. Challenging. If all you want in life is a challenge. Okay. Moving to a new topic a little bit. We've seen two ways now to try and deal with the financial aspect of this, okay? Simple methods, simple sanitariums, keep costs down. Actually, you'll pretty much find that her counsel is small for anything associated with this, okay? Vegetarian restaurants, bakeries, health food manufacturing places, she said keep them all small, okay? But have a bunch of them. Spread them out, spread them out, okay? But still, I don't care. I don't care how small. I mean, let's just say that you're only going to spend... Huh, what a joke. Um, the project that I'm involved with right now, in the last year and a half, the Lord has blessed. And without bragging about the individual, my partner has sunk well over $800,000 into the project in the last year and a half. Money that he did not have when we started. He's a building contractor. You may have heard something about the building industry lately. But he's been busy. And the Lord has blessed him. And it's taken every dime of that. And most of what we've developed, we developed probably, I would estimate, 20 cents to the dollar 
on the restaurant. The, all the equipment we got, all our stoves, all our hoods, all our sinks, everything that we got in the restaurant, <laughs> we got used off of eBay, out of an auction. I spent a year and a half running steel wool, making them look nice again, okay? But I don't know, I don't think it could be done for less. My, my partner is, is he's, a, he's, a, he's a cheap guy. He knows, <laughs> he knows how, to, how to get the most out of a buck, okay? So let's just say that you're going to do a mere 800 grand in every city. How are you going to pay for that? <laughs> you know? Well, hmm, let's look at that. You are to go into these cities and begin work in a humble way. If we had faithfully followed from the first, the instruction regarding city work, means would have come in for us to establish in these places schools and small sanitariums where we could treat the sick and preach the gospel and educate the people in Bible truth. Look at this sentence. We would have had means to sustain all the enterprises for missionary work that we could carry forward. Under what circumstances would that have been available? If we had faithfully followed from the first instructions regarding city work. How in the world does city work generate money? So far, we've spent 800 grand in Wichita. When does it start generating money, you might ask? <laughs> well, hmm. Here's an interesting statement. Do you not know that unless you carry the truth to the cities, there will be a drying up of means? She tells us that city work is a financial producer. And to neglect it is going to cost us financially. Okay? City work is to be the financial foundation of the loud cry. Who do you think was going to pay for that? <laughs> you know? what are you, what are you, how are you going to pay for the loud cry? Money's going to have to come from someplace. It comes from those who are converted in the cities. The money in our world is congested in the cities. And as they are converted, they will put their money into the work. We've neglected them. Not totally, but to some extent. Shall we not advance in faith just as if we had thousands of dollars? We do not have half faith enough. Let us act our part in warning these cities. The warning message must come to the people who are ready to perish, unwarned, unsaved. How can we delay? As we advance, the means will come. But we must advance by faith, trusting in the Lord God of Israel. That was written in 1909. Adjusted for inflation, thousands of dollars may come out something more along the lines of hundreds of thousands of dollars. But trust me, hundreds of thousands of dollars doesn't go all that far. <laughs> you know, we've burned up 800,000 so far. Okay. Uh, incidentally, our restaurant's been open for four months now. Um, and I would like to say that after 120 days, I now feel qualified to come back from the promised land. I'm slower than Joshua and Caleb. But, you know, come back from the, the promised land and say, you know what? This method works. We are well able to take the cities. I don't care if they have fortifications like Jericho. We are well able to take the cities in four months. We have three people attending church. We have 
30, easily 40 people, I don't know, maybe 50 people on a first name basis asking spiritual questions to you know, varying levels. Okay. We've got, we have won the confidence. It's, it's, I, I am a skeptical guy. The last thing in the world would ever walk into a, a, some sort of a commercial establishment and trust them to give me a straight answer. I just don't do that. But people walk in and we're in a little health food store type of thing. Actually, it's pretty, fairly good size. But yeah, they walk in and they ask these questions. What should I do for this? What do I do for that? You know, we try to be careful and, you know, hey, I'm not a doctor. I don't diagnose. I don't prescribe, you know. So, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to assume a role that I shouldn't have. But, but the openings to win their confidence are, are, are mind-numbing, what I've seen in four months, okay? As we advance, the money will come in. But we must advance by faith. I think that means you're not going to see the money till you're moving. Is that right? Is that with me? You know? Okay? <clears throat> as men and women are brought into the truth in the cities, the means will begin to come in. As surely as honest souls will be converted, their means will be consecrated to the Lord's service, and we shall see an increase of our resources. Go to these wealthy men with a heart filled with love for Christ and suffering humanity and asking them to help you in the work you are trying to do for the Master. As they see that you reveal the sentiments of God's benevolence, accordingly touched in their hearts, they will realize that they can be Christ's helping hand by doing medical mission and work. They will be led to cooperate with God to provide the facilities necessary to set in operation the work that needs to be done. Now this is, a, this is a, a, an amazing piece of social engineering <laughs> that Ellen White suggests here. Um, it, it, it took me a long time to figure this out. I, I read all these statements about going to these wealthy men, and because I did not understand the benevolent work that I talked about this morning, that was completely off my radar map until less than two years ago, okay? I did not understand. I had no idea how to approach these wealthy men. This is how you approach the wealthy men. You start doing something to help your neighborhood. You help the people. You earn your bona fides, okay? Then you have the right to go to Mr. Moneybags, and you say, dear Mr. Moneybags, this is what we're trying to do down on South Seneca. Could, could you help us? Well, you know, nine times out of ten, they're going to say, yeah, well, you know, I, like, I give money to my own church. Bye. <laughs> but every so often, you're going to walk into some guy's office, and he's feeling guilty for whatever reason, you know? And he's got, a, he's, 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 got a, he's got a conscience problem, you know? And he thinks, oh, you know, maybe if I do something good, you know, then I'll you know, make up for it. And he gives you a thousand bucks. What can you do with a thousand bucks? Not a whale of a lot, but you can do something. So what you do is you take the thousand dollars and you go do something and you don't, you know, why is the serpents here? Okay? You don't just, oh, let's put the thousand dollars into the slush fund. No, no, uh, uh not that thousand dollars. You go out and you do something very, very specific with that. And you take pictures. And then you come back the next week and say, Mr. Moneybags, I just wanted to show you some pictures. This is what we did with your thousand dollars. You see this picture of little Maria here? We saw her walking to school. It was only 14 degrees. And she just had a t-shirt on. But see that nice big jacket? We bought that with your money, Mr. Moneybags. Do it for the children. Hey, we learned that from Bill Clinton. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there's a psychology to working with people. Come on. <laughs> okay. And then the guy is on your side. And now you have the right, not just to ask him for money. He may not give you any more than a thousand bucks. Maybe it was only 500 to begin with. Who knows? Okay. But now you have a friendship. He's, he's helped you. He knows you. Now you have a right to work for his soul too. That needs to be done. 
Why do not our people wake up to the peril threatening the men and women in the cities of America? Why are not our churches aroused? And why is there not an earnest call made for volunteers? Volunteers? That's a way to save money. Because a person that you don't pay costs a lot less than a person you do. <laughs> I learned that in Business 101. <laughs> okay? Volunteers. The Lord's work requires, this kind of the Lord's work will require volunteers. Opinions vary on this point. This is, in fact, the one point upon which I've caught the most flack from people who don't like you know, some point or other that I might happen to say. I got a letter, an email, a month or two ago. A lady had gone to our website somehow. She'd heard about it. She read about it. She says, wow, you guys are doing a real cool thing down there in Wichita. This is exactly what my husband and I have been studying about and trying to learn. And, and the, the Lord is calling us to come work for you. Good. So I wrote her back. And I said, great, I'm glad you're interested. We do not currently have any paying positions. We're actually looking for volunteers. And I don't have any housing to offer. But if that's not a problem to you, come. <laughs> and she wrote me back. You know, it's really hard to understand what, you know, the tone of voice in an email. And maybe, you know, maybe I've got some sort of a persecution complex or something. But she wrote me back this email that was just a little steamy, I thought. And she says, well, I couldn't come as a volunteer. I don't know anybody could come as a volunteer. The Lord doesn't say where everybody should be a volunteer. And besides, the worker is worthy of his hire. Okay, now maybe she didn't write it in that tone. I don't know. But, you know, you can't just throw Bible texts away. The worker is worthy of his hire. Figured I'd better look that up. Go your way. Behold, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Carry neither money bag, knapsack, nor sandals, and greet no one along the road. But whatever house you enter, first say, peace to this house. And if a son of peace is there, your peace will rest on it. If not, it will return to you. And remain in the same house, eating and drinking such things as they give. For the laborer is worthy of his wages. That's room and board, brother. <laughs> That's what I'm offering for my 40 Bible workers, is room and board. Okay? It's biblical. It's not the position for everyone. Right? There's another reason why those, 20, those single 20-something types, you know, hey, when I was 20-something, everything I owned fit into 13 boxes. Well, I was pretty mobile back then. It was an easy life. Got more complicated when I got married. Okay? Didn't get worse, but it got more complicated. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> the road we traveled. Been looking at the history of this. Opinions varied. Early on, this particular opinion was voiced. Does the plan for the College of Medical Evangelists contemplate the establishment of a full-fledged medical college that will be recognized by legal bodies such as the American Medical Association? you know it must have such recognition to be worth a nickel. Now, A.G. Daniels is a man for whom I have a great deal of admiration. He was not a bad guy. 
the day I have any right or reason to stand up and criticize our pioneers is a new day in my book. They're all better men than I am. They all gave more for God's cause than I have. But I differ with him on this one. This was right after he was dealing with Kellogg. He was tired of this messy Chicago benevolent work. Can't we just have some normal, dignified doctors? Can't we just cut the nonsense? I'm thinking that may have been his line of thought. In the end, as they considered, the majority of the brethren saw advantage in associating with the AMA. One exception I might mention was the college's business manager, John Burden. But joining the AMA wasn't easy. One major hurdle was the matter of a facility for the practical training of the medical students. The AMA authorities who came to look at the school rejected the sanitarium building as inadequate. So the Brethren voted to construct a hospital building at Loma Linda. After two years, the building was unfinished, behind schedule, and over budget, and already rejected by the AMA because it was too far out in the country, because it was, in fact, in a tourist area. right where God said a soul-winning health institution should be. Are the AMA evil? No. They're, they're logical. They just have a different program. Don't, don't throw rocks at them. They, they're perfectly logical. They said, listen, we're trying to train people to, to deal with as wide a variety of, of disease circumstances as possible. You can't find that out here in the tourist area. If somebody has a really, really serious disease, they're not going to waste their time in your little, nice, little touristy, you know, health thing. They're going to they're go home to be sick, <laughs> okay? They're going to go to a real hospital, not a health retreat type of a place. You can't run a medical school like we're talking about with that kind of experience for your, your students. What did they need to do from the AMA perspective? Well, they needed more cases. They needed a wider variety of, of, of illness, you know, disease conditions, right? Where would you find that around here? Los Angeles, okay? That's where the sick people were. What the college needed, they said, was a 200-bed hospital in downtown Los Angeles. This raised questions in the minds of the brethren because they remembered some counsel that Ellen White had given. Was it right to build a 200-bed hospital in downtown L.A.? Is that what God wanted? And they remembered back to a circumstance in 1901 where they had considered briefly building a sanitarium out on Hill Street. And Ellen White had gone there and had heard a voice saying, God forbid, <laughs> encourage no settlement here of any description. The, 
the Lord has at no time guided in the large plans that have been laid for buildings in Los Angeles. He has given light as to how we should move, and yet movements have been made that are contrary to the light and instruction given. I was taken to see this property on Hill Street, and as I walked up the hill in front of it, I heard a voice distinctly, I just heard distinctly a voice that said, encourage no settlement here of any description. God forbids. My people must get away from such surroundings. This place is as Sodom for wickedness. The place where my institutions are established must be altogether different. Leave the cities. And like Enoch, come from your retirement to warn the people of the cities. 1901. Los Angeles. Sodom. It'd be interesting to just kind of speculate. What was the moral condition of Los Angeles in 1901? In some ways, I think it was better than now. In some ways, it might have been worse. I rather suspect, just you know, I'm just guessing, but I, I think that prostitution might have been more prominent and prevalent in 1901. I think so. I doubt that homosexuality would have been. I doubt that... The movie industry would have had the influence in those days, <laughs> since it hadn't been born yet. Safe bet. Okay. Well, okay. Anyhow, going on. It was felt by some of the brethren that the testimony of 1901 had reference to a sanitarium and not to a clinical hospital such as the needs of the medical college now required. And I, here's my question. My question is, did we in fact... Did the Lord's work, in fact, require that kind of a medical college? And I'm, I'm really going to step on toes here. I'm going to say I don't think it did. I don't think it did. I think there was another, another avenue that was open for us that we could have gone down. We didn't. That doesn't mean that we committed corporate, total, irrevocable apostasy. I'm saying I think we made a mistake. Maybe you never make them, but I do. The uh, final result of the consultations, of course, was a 200-bed hospital in downtown Los Angeles. Its construction was authorized in the fall of 1915. It was completed in 1916 and named the Ellen G. White Memorial Hospital in honor of the Lord's Messenger who had died in June 1915. Over the decades since, the White has played a huge role in the training of thousands of fully licensed, highly trained, and qualified Seventh-day Adventist physicians many of whom have served the Lord selflessly, for which we should all be grateful. The medical missionary course at Loma Linda did not fare so well. 1923 was the last year it was offered. Let me be blunt. I believe we missed a golden opportunity. I think Elder Burden was right. I believe the Lord gave us a chance to establish a whole new kind of medical missionary practice, gain the blessing of the state of California in the process. But I also believe in the total sincerity of the men who, who did what I think is a mistake. They were better men than I. Cut them some slack, but learn from their lessons. Because they were such good men, and I believe that, I mean that, because they were such good men, the one thing they would want us to do is learn. Learn from their mistakes. If they made a mistake, they're not going to defend it now. 
Not partially because they're dead, but you know, they're not going to they're not going to defend their mistakes. You know, it's always easy to say that, isn't it? <laughs> I didn't hear a word from him. <laughs> uh, they're not going to defend their mistakes. They're going to want us to learn, because they gave their lives, they gave their sweat, they gave their blood to try and bring about the second coming. What if? We are far behind in doing the work that should have been done in these long-neglected cities. The work will now be more difficult than it would have been a few years ago. But if we take up the work in the name of the Lord, bearers will be broken down and decided victories will be ours. In this work, physicians and gospel ministers are needed. Had we in the past worked after the Lord's plans, many lights would be shining brightly that are going out. What? Many lights would be shining brightly that are going out. What does this mean? Unless I miss my guess, it's just a slight rephrasing of that famous quotation from volume 5, many a star that we have admired for its brilliancy will then go out in darkness. Right? Who were the many lights going out at the time that was written? Well, you got to include John Harvey Kellogg. And there is specific counsel to go into city work that was given to A.T. Jones, and much the same, though not quite as clear, to Elliot Wagner, and even Albion Fox Ballinger. Do you have any You don't. I'll tell you, you don't. I don't either. None of us have any idea what this church would have been or where we'd be today if those four guys had stayed in the, in the message. Can you imagine that? Jones, Wagner, Kellogg, Ballinger? Zowie! <laughs> That would have been cool. Okay. And what now? When the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches the worst evil that can be placed there. We looked at that before. The union of Christ-like work for the body and Christ-like work for the soul is the true interpretation of the gospel. Over the last century, we have largely developed along two lines, preaching and state-of-the-art technical medicine. We spent a long time already looked at the call for an evangelistic focus, medical missionary focus on simple medical things. But what about our preaching? This is stuff for two. Remember the statement there? It's placed on our churches. That's where the detriment falls. When the missionary, medical missionaries are not united with the gospel workers, the, the, the evil is placed on our churches. The gospel ministry is needed to give permanence and stability to the medical missionary work. And the ministry needs the medical missionary work to demonstrate the practical work in the gospel. Neither part of the work is complete without the other. Amen. What does it mean if you don't have the complete thing? I think it means it's not going to work. <laughs> okay? You, know, you ever try putting an automobile engine back together and end up with spare parts? <laughs> That's a bad sign. <laughs> Funny things can happen when you turn the ignition key, you know, if you don't have all the parts in place, okay? Neither part of the work is complete without the other. I have been shown that in our labor for the enlightenment of the people in the large cities, the work has not been as well organized, or the methods of labor as efficient as in other churches that have not the great light we regard as essential. Why is this? Because so many of our laborers have been those who love to preach. And many who were not thoroughly qualified to preach were set to work preaching, I suppose. And a large share of the labor has been put forth in preaching. Is there anything wrong with preaching? No. Why is she talking so negatively? Because it's not complete. 
the combination of work for the healing of the soul and work for the healing of the body is the true interpretation of the gospel. Do you want a task that's impossible? Preach to the, preach to you know, <laughs> preach up the second coming. <laughs> okay, preaching alone will never do it. What is this worst evil? I think this is a thus saith Dave. Take it or leave it. I think it's fooling ourselves into thinking we're doing something that's going to finish the Lord's work when we're not. We've got a hundred years of, of trial and error on that. I think it's maybe time to learn a learn a lesson there. And so, these are my conclusions. Take them or leave them. Your call. Proclamation is the explanation of the demonstration. And proclamation without demonstration is actually misinformation. I get a little worried sometimes when I hear people talk, we run a proclamation ministry. Well, good, brother. It's good. Make sure somebody's demonstrating it, though. You know? Because it's not complete without it. But this presentation is. So let's stop. Take a break. <laughs>